Thank you very much. It's a huge privilege for me to be here this morning. I came with my friend Luke. We drove from Ontario this morning. From Windsor. No, I'm joking. Uh, Just from Peterborough. It's only five hours. Really good to be here. Um, I had the privilege of being in Quebec last weekend as well. I was at another MB church called St. Eustache. It's in St. Eustache. Um, and it was in French, so j'ai fait la prédication en français, même if my French is more African than Québécois, but I try. So, but today I have the privilege of speaking to you in English, and I hope you can understand my English. Um, I have a few questions I want to ask you before we get started, and I have some prizes if you get the questions right. Now, I have to say from the beginning that Terry and Sue cannot answer these questions. And these questions are, have to do with the country of Burundi. And um, first of all, I want to ask if somebody can name one export of the country of Burundi. Coffee. Coffee. All right, you get a prize. This is this year's harvest of Burundian coffee, just roasted a few weeks ago. Second question, where is Burundi? Oh, that is not good enough. Uh, okay, I, I need somebody to describe a little bit more. Just Africa, come on. Africa's a country, isn't it? Uh, no? Yes. Yes, what else? Yes, and Congo. The three countries are around Burundi. That's, that's good. Would you like some coffee? Excellent. (laughs) Okay, how about one more question? What is the Great Lake of Africa that um, Burundi is situated on? Hmm? No. No. What? No. I'll give you another hint. It's the longest lake in the world, and it's the second deepest lake in the world. One more. It's in between Congo and Burundi. What's the capital? Part of the Rift Valley. Does he know? Chad? Nope. Wow. I'm disappointed. Okay, how about another question? The, the lake is Lake Tanganyika. It's the former name of Tanzania as well. It's quite an impressive lake. I invite you to come and visit us and go swimming in Lake Tanganyika. It's beautiful. Um, let me ask you a different question. What is the capital of Burundi? Nope. Yes, you got your coffee ready, so... Anybody else? Capital of Burundi? I'll share. No. I'll share. Nobody. Come on. Bujumbura. Okay, one last question. Um, can anybody name any of the ethnic groups of Burundi? What? Tutus? <laughs> That's something you wear. <laughs> you kind of said both and... Yes, Hutus and Tutsis. And there's another group called the Batois, who are the pygmy people that most people have never heard of. You're welcome. Thank you. Now, you think that was just... Fun, but it was really educational. I really want you to understand a little bit of Burundi because most people have never even heard of Burundi. 
cool. Terry and Sue have actually been there, or Sue, yeah, which is so amazing. Um, Burundi is a very beautiful country. Burundi, like Rwanda, they're the most densely populated countries in all of Africa. So Burundi is about the size of Nova Scotia, but has a population of about 10 million people. So if you think of an economy that's based pretty much on agriculture, there's a lot of pressure that's happening on this place simply because of the population density. And so there's a lot of pressures that are happening. And in fact, let me tell you a little bit about the situation of the country at this point. Um, Burundi, uh, uh, starting last May 2015, the president decided he would go for a third term. But this was against the constitution. We call it the, the, the sickness of the African presidents. He caught the same sickness and he went for another term. And um, as a result, there's been popular uprisings. There's been numerous political assassinations. There's been many young people accused of being part of, actually not even accused, but just uh, suspected as being part of demonstrations and going against the government who have been killed. One day they're there, one day they're gone. Some mass graves have been found, and sometimes they're found on the street, their bodies broken the next morning. Um, and attacks, we go to bed for a while there, we're going to bed for, quite, um, for a number of nights with gunfire and bombs going off, that was going on for months. We actually left the country for a few months um, to, uh, to get out. So tensions are high. But the other piece of this is the economic situation. Burundi was already called the hungriest nation in the world before this started, and so as you can imagine, things have only got tougher that way. Um, the dollar or the Burundian franc is tanked and uh, the food prices have gone up and, and unemployment is, is rampant. So it's a difficult situation. We hear a lot of stories about how bad Africa is, don't we? And it might seem like I'm just promoting those same stories. But let me tell you that this difficult situation is an opportunity for God to work. And God is at work. So many of these songs we sing every week. Every Tuesday morning, we get together with a group of people at 7.30 in the morning, and we worship and intercede for Burundi. And we sing a lot of these songs, Kingdom of Heaven. We sing that almost every week. God, let your kingdom come here. Let your will be done here. That's what he called us to pray for. And so that's what we're doing. Say, God, come. This is a time of opportunity. This is the time for the church to rise up. For people to love their enemies, to make a difference. And so we get to work with some wonderful people. Let me tell you a little bit about what we're doing. We are in this part of the world with um, the MB Mission, which is the, the mission board for the Mennonite Brethren denomination, which you're part of. And um, we work in Burundi and, and also in the eastern part of Congo and in Malawi. And if I could say it in the most succinct way, we partner with local ministries. We do capacity building. So we get alongside local people who are doing the thing and we promote what they're doing. We say, go, yes, we're your biggest fans. So how do we do that? We do trainings. We do lots of trainings. We do trainings on children, for children's ministry leaders. We do chil- um, trainings on discipleship, on community development, on worship, on mission, on identity and authority in Christ. Um, also do some preaching. We disciple local leaders. I'm also involved with advocacy and networking with people in Europe and people in Canada and people in the U.S. making partnerships for the ministry in Africa. 
So these are a few of the, the roles we pray, we intercede. These are some of the roles that we, that we do. These are some of the hats that we wear to see God's kingdom come. So our heart, or what our goal is, we would want to see God glorified more and more through strong, visionful churches that have a heart for discipleship and mission. And we believe that transformation, and I want to say holistic transformation, because God didn't just come to see us saved spiritually, but to see our whole lives transformed by the gospel. We believe that holistic transformation comes through the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ, and God has chosen to reveal himself and to bring hope and transformation to this world through us. God has no plan B, okay? We are plan A. God has chosen us to bring change. So if we can see a strong church in Burundi that is committed to seeing the kingdom of God manifesting itself in that context, we're going to see transformation happen. So... That's what we get to do. We get to work with the church. We get to work alongside leaders who are doing, the th- doing a lot of work. I'd like to show you a video at this point. Maybe we should just say, why am I here? You're probably saying, like, where did this guy come from, and how did he end up in our church? Um, thanks for asking. Um, I met David a few years ago at a conference here in Quebec, and we just talked for a few minutes, but right away I felt a connection. David's a great guy. I think you're, you're really blessed to have him as a pastor and, um, and since then, we've been emailing back and forth some as we've been in Africa as a family and uh, just connecting. And then a few months ago, or just I guess it was last month in Toronto, we met at another conference and he invited me to come and, and share with you. And he said, um, you can come and I'm going to be make sure I'm not there. I'm going to be on holidays when you're... No, that's not exactly what he said. Um, wish he could be here. We had coffee actually last weekend, which was great. So thanks for having me, and I'm so glad to be able to share with you about what God's doing in that part of the world. And I hope this morning can be an encouragement to you um, in your place here in Montreal, in the West Island, but also as you think globally about what God's doing in this world. So I was sharing with you a little bit about what we do. I want to show you a video now that uh, tells one story about the transformation in one man's life And it just gives you a snapshot into a bit of the life in Burundi and about the work that God's doing there. So please, can we show the video now? My name is Nagijimana Jamari, and I'm from the Bata community. I am married, I have one wife and four kids. I'm the night guard here at the Karbabi Medical Clinic. I welcome the sick that are coming here at night, and I guide them to where they should go. Now my children are able to attend school and they are getting good grades. But it wasn't always like this. 
The house I used to live in was a small hut. In the rainy season, we would get wet. The rain would come inside the hut and sometimes it would put out the fire. And when the fire was out, the children and my wife were so cold. During the dry season, sometimes it happened that huts would burn down while the family was sleeping. This happened in my community and the whole family was burnt to death. In reality, our profession of pottery used to help us battle, but now pottery has lost its value. We can't even earn a small quantity of food anymore. When my mom was making pots, I used to sit beside her and help her. Making pots is a difficult thing. It usually takes five days. The money you earn for a small pot is not very much. They can give you a hundred frambu. It was exhausting and I couldn't even earn one kilo of flour. My life was becoming worse day by day and I was watching my kids starve. Burundi, nous avons trois ethnies, les Hutus, les Tutsis et les Trois. Les Trois sont des une catégorie qui est discriminée de, de deux ethnies. When I would go to the market to sell my parts, I would hear people from other ethnic groups insulting us, calling out, Mutwa, 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 or Pig, Pig, Pig. They compared us to being pigs. Being called a mutwa, potter, or pig makes us feel miserable. There was no one who cared about us or advocated for us. I felt like I didn't exist, like I'm not human. In my heart, I thought that God had forgotten us, the battle people. But one day, I heard something say, No, wait, God will come to visit you. Now I know it was God who said that to me. He was speaking to my heart. Harvest for Christ moved here to Karbabi a few years ago. There were some from Harvest who taught us to read and write. Normally, to learn how to read and write is difficult, but it wasn't difficult for me because I really wanted to learn. Harvest helped me to build a house. My house now has a bedroom for the kids and a separate bedroom for me and my wife. I'm so thankful to Harvest. When I see my family, they are happy, they are blessed. Venice came and we worked together. We visited other Batwa families. He taught us how to live and how the significance of our name must change. To be the same name, Mutwa, but without discrimination. 
We lived together in community for two years and then, when I was ready, he began to teach me the word of God. God began to show me that I'm a human being like others, that I must be changed and accept the name of Mutwa without it hurting me anymore in my life. Venice came here to my house so that I could hear and understand the word of God and now I believe. I decided to get baptized. I was baptized together with my wife, my father and my mother. Now my neighbors come to my house every week and we study the Bible together. my own songs using verses from the Bible. I'm now in a singing group. Our group formed after we were baptized together. We are a mix of all three ethnic groups, Hutus, Tutsis, and us, Batwa. God taught me to not give up hope. To not give up hope. Do not give up hope, but to trust. I love that story. I love this transformation that's happened in his life. And you see it through him writing his own worship songs now. You know, going from a life of just pagan and, and not having a good life. And I got to tell you the backstory to this story. So there's three ethnic groups, the Hutus and Tutsis. You probably heard of them from, from Rwanda. And Burundi's had the same problems as Rwanda, the ethnic conflict. Except that in, in Burundi, it was for 12 years where they were fighting. From about 1993, it started before. I mean, actually, much before that. But the big crisis started in 1993, continued to 2005. But the Batwa, the pygmy people are marginalized by everybody. Everybody hates them. And they comprise about 1% of the population. Well, you heard them talk about Harvest for Christ a number of times. Harvest for Christ is a ministry that was started by Burundians, is led by Burundians, and they minister to Burundians. And so we come alongside and we help Harvest for Christ to do what they're doing. So they're the ones that are bringing transformation to this, this, bat, this Batwa community. And we come alongside and help Harvest for Christ. So they sent Venus to, to live with the pygmy people. And he just gave us time. He would go door to door just visiting with the people. And for two years, he just lived with the people. He had asked them initially, what, what, what are your needs here? And so they identified health care, education, and housing. And so you saw all of those things have been, have been taken care of now in that community. After two years, the Batwa people came back to Harvest for Christ and said, you know, You've done so much for us. It's, we're so thankful. But there's something you haven't, you haven't given us. And it's the love and the joy and the peace that you have. What is that? And so the door was opened wide for them to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, they knew that if they went in there blazing with the gospel in word, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have flown. They wouldn't have accepted it. 
So they performed the great commandment and then were given permission to do the great commission. And now they're turning to Christ. Transformation's happening. Great story. I just want to brag a little bit. My wife made this video, so um, thank you. What's that? (laughs) Yes, I am. Um, I want to open up the Bible uh, now, and uh, I want to talk about a really popular topic this morning. It's called suffering. I know it's kind of funny, but you know the Bible has a lot to say about suffering. And the way I want to talk about this topic of suffering this morning is to tell you a little story from my own um, an experience that I had in Africa. It kind of paints a, a little bit more of a picture of, of what life is like there, but also will show you my own path in God getting my attention on this topic of suffering. And it will lead us into looking at a scripture that is, is really profound. So I often travel across the border to Congo. And the main town I go to in the province of South Kivu is the capital called Bukavu. Bukavu is a town or city of about a million people, which is a lot of people, but Bukavu is really more like a village. It's, it's got very few amenities. It's very, very not developed. There's good English for you. Um, but it's a beautiful place. It's located right on, the, on another great lake, Lake Kivu. And uh, in former times, it was actually a holiday destination for, for the, the Belgian co- colonialists. They would go to this place because of the scenery. But it's a place that's, that's falling apart. In fact, somebody develop, uh, coined the term for Africa or for Congo that it's undeveloping. And uh, sometimes that's, that's what it seems like. It's going backwards. Anyways, I was on my way to Bukavu this time. It takes me about four hours. I have to drive through a chunk of Burundi. And then I, I cross over into Ro- Rwanda for a short piece. And then finally I get into Congo. And then Bukavu is right there. Now, when I go across the border into Congo, almost every time the police start to bother me. See, at a certain moment, Mobutu, the former president of Congo, said, Debrouillez-vous. Go find your own food. Go find your own means, because I'm not paying you salaries anymore. And he said this to the civil servants, to the police and military and others. You can, can you imagine the chaos that can spring from that? And so you learn to fear the police and the military. I, I, it's getting a little bit better in Congo, but we still fear them. And so on this time was no different. I, I had barely driven 10 minutes and I was getting into the center of town and I was on my way to a, a church meeting because we have about 10 Mennonite Brethren churches on the, in the east part of Congo and the main church in Bukavu was having some real inner conflict and they had asked me to come and help kind of mediate and listen to the two sides and so that, that's what I was going to do. So I get about 10 minutes in and before I know it, the police, the, there's always police on the side of the road stopping people, and really they're just trying to get money from people. And they were out on the street. They'd see me from like a kilometer away already. The Mzungu driving, white people are called Mzungus, and, uh, and also with Burundi license plates, pull me over. And they say I have to pay 300 American dollars for a, a parking permit. I'm like, while I was driving, I wasn't parking, for one thing. Second of all, I've never heard of this before. I, I know my papers are in order, but they were adamant I have to pay $300. Well, we, our principle is not to pay bribes, but I need to get to this meeting, and I want to get these guys off my back. So I said, okay, I'll give you $20, and let's be done with this. And no, they, they finally relented to 150 
but that was as low as they're going. There's no way I'm paying $150. So I say, okay, well, let's go back to the border. I'm going to go back to the border. They never told me about this thing. Let's go back there, see what they say. So what do you know? Before I know it, I have three police in my Jeep, and now we've turned around, we're going back to the border. And I'm getting angry, okay? Missionaries aren't supposed to get angry, but I was. In fact, this is a dual carriage road. I stop in the middle of the road and I see some other police over there. And I say to the guys, hey, there's some more police. Let's, let's get them in the car too. Well, that was not very nice. You would never do something like that. And the police says to me, I don't like the way you're talking to me. And I was like, okay, I better stop. And then I realized, you know what, this is, this is silly. I, going to the border is not going to solve this. I need to talk to my, my Congolese friends. So... Um, we called them, I called them, and meanwhile, these guys are just sitting in my car, letting me drive all over town. It's just, when would that happen here? So we drive to my friends, and they talk with them, and they talk for quite a while, actually, probably about half an hour, but they they got the guys to to relent and and let go of these charges. And uh, the thing is, I, I left with a bad taste in my mouth. Like, how am I supposed to respond in this situation? Like, Everything in me just says, this is wrong, this is unjust, and I want to prove myself. This is, you can't, this is not a, a real thing, you're, you're making this up. And I'm angry and frustrated. Well, interestingly enough, the next morning in my, my daily Bible reading, it has me reading Acts chapter 16. And I want to read that now. And this is a powerful story of somebody who really went through some, some real suffering and, and persecution if you have your Bibles, you can turn to it. I want to read a chunk of it. You know, in, in Africa, services go for three or four hours, so I, you know, I hope you guys are settled in. <laughs> so Acts chapter 16, verse 16 to the end. Stick with me, I'm going to read this quickly. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. See, she earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept us up for many days and finally Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and they are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell, fastened their feet in their stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up. And when he saw the prisoner, d- prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought, out, brought them out and asked, sirs, 
What must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their, their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into a prison. And now, do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and encouraged them, and then they left. This is an incredible story, and I got to tell you, that next morning, it hit me between the eyes like a ton of bricks. This message is for me. Look at these guys. These guys do a good work. They set a girl free. This girl was possessed by a demon. We have no idea what that's like. She was being controlled by this demon, not only by the demon, but also by the slave owners. She had no life. And Paul and Silas set her free. Now we see that Paul did it reluctantly, right? It took days and days with this girl yelling out and and blowing his cover, if you will, And finally, and I think reluctantly, probably because he knew what would happen, he chased the demon out in the name of Jesus. And look what happens. A good work. Setting up a a girl free. And what happens? They're brought before the magistrates. The entire crowd turns against them. And what happens next? We're told that they're beaten. Not only are they beaten, but they're severely flogged. Okay, at least in in Jewish customs, they had laws about this. A person could be flogged 40 times minus one, 39 times. But in Roman culture, there was no such law. It says that they were severely beaten. So you know at this point, their, their backs are shredded. They're in pain. They're in deep, deep pain. Next, they're thrown into the prison. And prison is not a pretty place. They can't go watch. I worked in a young offenders facility for a while as a teacher, and there's no video games to play. There's no gym to play in. No way. This is the, not a pretty place. In fact, it says that they were put into the, the back corner of the jail, and their, their, their legs are put in stocks. Meanwhile, their backs are destroyed. And what are they doing at this time? What are they doing? They're praying and singing songs, of, they're singing songs of worship to God. Can you imagine? It's only at the end of the story that we find out that they were, they're actually Roman citizens and they had a get-out-of-jail card free. A get-out-of-jail card free card. No, they had a get-out-of-jail free card. Yes, you know what I mean. They had this card and they didn't play it until the end. What? 
Are they crazy? Why would anybody only say that at the end? It boggles my mind. Why did they not say that right at the beginning? And how is it that they were in prison and they were just worshiping the Lord? I'm willing to guess that me, maybe most of us in this room, and I pray that it wouldn't be like this, we'd be in that prison. What would we be doing? I have my rights. Where's my lawyer? I want justice. Hey, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't do this to me. They weren't saying that. They were worshiping the Lord. They were rejoicing in what had just happened to them. I want to put forward to you this morning that if they'd had a different attitude, if they'd been thinking the whole time and declaring their, 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 their right for justice, for something different to happen, they would have missed this opportunity. They would have missed the opportunity to present Jesus to the jailer. They would not have been in the frame of mind to love the jailer who was, should have been, by all accounts, their enemy, the one who was keeping them in this place, who was the representation of this, this, this bad system. And they would have missed the divine opportunity. You know what I'm saying here? So why? Why would they respond this way when it would seem that the natural and the right thing to do would be to stand up for your rights? And boy, we know this in the Western world. Our rights. My rights. You can't step on my rights. Why? One, I believe they were surrendered to the plan of God for their lives. In Acts chapter 13, the beginning of that, um, that chapter, Paul and Barnabas at this point have just come back from a mission trip and now they're, they're kind of in between and it says that they're just spending time worshiping the Lord. They're just worshiping the Lord. And it says that during their worship time, the Holy Spirit spoke to them and to those who were gathered there and sent and it called Paul and Barnabas to another mission. There was no questions asked. No other thing was said. They just simply prayed together, laid their hands on Paul and Barnabas, and off they went. They were surrendered to the plan of God in their lives. The plan of God was more important than their own satisfaction, their own feeling goodness. Second of all, they believed that God was in control. God has got this. God's got this. I don't know what's going on here. I'm in a lot of pain right now, but God's got this. Second or thirdly, the center of their life was not themselves and their success and their happiness, but God and his plan. Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 21, for me to live is Christ, for me to die is gain. Right? He surrendered. The center of his life is not himself and what he can gain, but it's who God is and what God has for his life. And the fourth thing I want to say to you is I think they had a different view on suffering. Philippians 3, 10 and 11, Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. What? Okay, the first two, I think we we can really easily identify with that and pray along with Paul. I want to know Christ. 
I want to know the power of his resurrection. Wow, the power of his resurrection. And Paul says, I want to know the fellowship also of sharing in his sufferings. Incredible. A completely different outlook on suffering. I think this is especially hard for us because we live in a society that venerates safety. We avoid danger at all costs. Perhaps our biggest concern is safety and security. Would you agree? I mean, car seats and whatever else we have, it's safety. What are most of our prayers? So many of our prayers are, God, protect us from this. Keep us safe from this and keep us safe. I'm not saying that's wrong, but but let's think about it too. The only time I see people praying for safety in, in the New Testament is when they were called to a mission that God had called them to and they want to see it accomplished. And so they were asking God for safety so that they can accomplish the task that he's called them to. But Paul is saying and asking that he might participate in fellowship in the sufferings of Christ. Listen to these key passages from the New Testament. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James 1, 2 to 4. Romans 5, 3 and 4. We rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance produces character and character produces hope. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Each of these verses tells us that joy is found in what is still yet to come. It's something that we're looking forward to. It's the hope we have of what's coming. Not the pleasures of this life, not personal comfort, and certainly not a life of ease. In fact, we rejoice in trial. We rejoice in trial. Why? Because of what it produces in us. It's what shapes us into the people God wants us to be. This is why we would bear up under suffering. It's also because of a realization that ultimately our lives are not our own. We exist for the glory of God. God does not exist for for my pleasure, but I exist for his. Okay? God does not exist for my pleasure. I exist for his. So I think it's safe to say that, at least in part, the church in the West, we tend to be weak and inward turned because exactly because of a wrong perspective on suffering. Again, listen to that first verse from James. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds because the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that we may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Do we want to grow to be more like Christ? Do we invite or ask for suffering? I don't know. 
I want to tell you a, a few stories of a few of my African brothers, Burundian brothers. Actually, one's Burundian, one's Congolese. And this has also been part of my learning in these last days about suffering and, and what it means. So the first guy I want to tell you about is Vinust. You saw Vinust in this video. He, he was up there just briefly in the middle, and he was speaking some French. Vinust is a representative of, of the ministry Harvest for Christ, and he's the one that's been living incarnationally with with the Batwa people. Now, the cool thing, um, Harvest for Christ has also began uh, a, a school of mission. Okay, this is a school for one year that's training Burundians and preparing them to be missionaries. Okay, this is one of the poorest nations in the world and they're preparing people to be missionaries. Some will stay within Burundi, but others are preparing to go outside. In fact, one young man is preparing to go to Tunisia, to North Africa. He feels God's called him specifically to Tunisia to work with Muslims in that context. So here's a school of mission. And in the first month of training, they're teaching the students about suffering. That to be a missionary and to be a follower of Christ is probably going to involve Suffering. If you're going to be a missionary, especially if you go to North Africa, it's going to be, mean suffering. So they've just been teaching on, on suffering and, and what that means for a missionary. And Venus had, had gone home and, and he'd studied for a while and he was tired, so he had a nap. And during his nap, he had a dream. And the dream was something about him being on a mountain with people coming up the mountain towards him, coming after him. And he woke up not being exactly clear what the dream meant, but one thing he did know was that something bad was coming, persecution was coming, and he needed to be ready. He immediately called his wife to come, and they prayed together, believing God was, was teaching him something, was preparing him for something. The very next day, the authorities came, the police, and they put him in prison. They accused him of something that he never did. For the next nine months, Venust was in an awful prison in Burundi. I went to visit him a couple of times. I was going to encourage him. That's what I thought. I'm going to visit my brother and share with him. I got into the prison after a while. Not a nice place. Crowded. If you want to eat, people have to bring food to you. Before I could even ask Venus, how you doing? He said, hey, Doug, how you doing? How's your family? I'm like, what? Wait a minute, I'm supposed to be asking you those questions. Venus has a family, I need to tell you. He has children, he has three children. They were alone this whole time. He says to me, Doug, I have this peace, I, I, I just don't understand it. Doesn't that sound familiar? The peace that transcends all understanding. He was living it. Well, Venus was in prison. He shared the gospel with a whole bunch of people. And five people came to Christ a church was started in the prison. Amen. That would not have happened if he had not borne up under that suffering. If he had been shouting, justice, I did not do what you said I did. But he bore up under it. And God used him to bring people to Christ and to start a church in that dark place. Amen? Another guy, Safari. Safari is actually Congolese, and he comes from that same town I was telling you about, uh, Bukavu. He's a Banyu Malenge. Banyu Malenge are uh, a group of Tutsis that many, many years ago fled Rwanda and were living in Congo. Nobody likes them. They're hated. And at a certain point, the hate became too much for Safari, 
and he fled the country. He ended up in a, in a refugee camp in Malawi. I've had the chance now to, to visit Safari a couple times at this refugee camp, and it's not a nice place. It's a desolate place. There's very few trees growing. It's windy, and dust is blowing constantly. They were getting food rations from the World Food Program, but um, about six months ago, due to a, a lack of funds, their food rations were cut nearly in half. It's a place without hope. Many women sell their bodies so that they can gain a little bit of money. The rate of suicide is way higher in the refugee camp compared to the society around. This is where Safari ended up, leaving the hate of Congo to this desolate place. Safari's a Mennonite. He believes very strongly in the views of peace and reconciliation. And he believed that this was a message that's needed in this refugee camp. I got to, to go there and I got to preach in a church. And this church is comprised of Burundians, Rwandans, Congo, Congolese, Malawians, and Sudanese, all worshiping the Lord together. It's a beautiful place. You know, I'm, I, I, I lead worship sometimes, and one of our prayers sometimes before we go up to lead worship is, God, just blow the roof off this place today. Well, this place had walls and it had no roof because it couldn't afford the roof. So you're preaching and you get sunburnt. But a wonderful service. This church was started by Safari. Safari arrived here and along with a team of people, they said, there needs to be a church. There needs to be an expression of the love of God in this dark place. And they planted a church. They haven't stopped here. Now they've gone outside of the refugee camp. They've planted 12 other churches in a space of a a few years. And there's over 2,000 people that are adhering to these churches It's incredible. A couple months ago, Safari was given papers by the UN to leave Malawi to go to Australia as a refugee. This is the moment that every every refugee is waiting for, the ticket out of this dark place. Safari said, no, I'm not going. God has called me to this place. I have a work to do here. In essence, what he said is, I will not capitulate to the riches and the comforts of this life, and I will be willing to suffer for the Lord. <sighs> I'm humbled by these brothers. And so many, as I could tell you about so many others, Francois, Eve, Onesphore, and others who have given up the opportunity of well-paying jobs for the sake of the calling on their lives for the sake of seeing the kingdom of God being manifested in the context that they find themselves in. But at a price, wondering where their support for each month will come, wondering, Eve, just had, his wife just had a baby two weeks ago, wondering how he will pay for the cesarean sex, section that she had to, to, have, to have this baby. Wondering where their, their, the, educa- the money for education for their children will come, how they will even feed their family but they know the calling on their lives and so they're willing to go there. Each of these brothers is teaching me things. They're setting an example for me. They're full of the joy of the Lord and they're unafraid of what the next day will bring. They're surrendered to the plan of God in their lives. They believe God is in control and they have a different perspective on suffering. They have a different perspective on suffering. 
I feel it's important that we in the West hear this, these stories of suffering because we don't know it, not to the same extent, but I think one day we will. I don't think this life like this will continue for, forever. And we need to be ready, church. We need to be ready. We need to be ready. And it might be the daily trials and struggles that come in our lives. Are we going to fight and say, ah, oh, this should not be happening to me? But are we going to say, God, what are you teaching me through this? How are you forming me and, and shaping me to be more like you? And can we even pray, God, can I fellowship in your sufferings so that I might become more like you? What is it? What is our end goal? Is it satisfaction in this life, this short life of 70, 80 years? Is that what we're shooting for? Or is it something more? That is the question we have to be asking ourselves. So the next time I went to Congo, what do you know? Another run-in with the police. My Congolese buddy had me just park in front of the market, and wouldn't, wouldn't you know what the police appeared out of seemingly nowhere and said, you can't park here. And I could park there, but they said you couldn't. How was I going to respond this time? I was praying, God, give me patience with these guys. Show me, what, what is the divine moment in this? I want to be faithful. I was with my Congolese friend. We managed to get them just 100 meters further to the church. And it, it just happened that um, a, a team from my church was, was visiting at that moment. And alongside of our Congolese brothers and sisters were painting the inside of the church, doing work together. And it was a beautiful sight, these Mzungus, these white people, along with the Congolese doing this work. And we managed to get the police down to the sanctuary to see the work that was going on. And they were actually impressed to see this unity and to see the love that was being expressed, they, they relented on what uh, they were charging me for. And so I said at that moment, guys, can I pray for you? So right there, outside in the open air, I put my arms on these two policemen, and I just prayed up a storm for them. And I asked for God's blessing on their lives. And I asked that God would bless their families and that God would provide for them and in miraculous ways that he would reveal himself to them. For me, that was, that was my, my moment. It was God transforming me in a small way. We'll see what happens next time I come across the police. It's not persecution like, like Paul and Silas went through, but I want to be ready for that. And I think God gives us little steps that we, we, step, we step over and, and he gives us more challenging uh, struggles to go through. So when trials come, if persecution comes, let's be asking God to help us to have his perspective in it. Not to run away or necessarily seek justice, but to surrender to his ways, trusting that he has a plan for us in mind. Let's not look for the easy way out, but that in everything he would receive the glory. It's a different perspective we're invited to have in all these things. Let's live our lives for him, for this is ultimately where we will be satisfied. That's the story for this morning. That's the word I want to share with you. That's the word in my heart. You know, I got to tell you that we minister in, in Africa and we feel called to that ministry, um, but I also yearn for the church in North America. I love the church, the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. And I, like I said at the beginning, God doesn't have a plan B. He has a plan A. 
And I hear about the things that Westside is doing, the community barbecue. I, was in, I went into Starbucks with David last Saturday, and it was just so cool to see the, the servers all knew him, and they knew about this, this barbecue that was coming up. Go, guys. Go, Westside. Awesome. Love your neighbors. Be out there. And be Christ to these people. I love it. God bless you in the work that you're doing. And may God help us to to follow him into even the hard times and to bear up under those times like Paul and Silas, to be his ambassadors even in the midst of hard times, that we'd be made into his image through the suffering that he brings our ways. Just to let you know, my wife and I are going back to, uh, and my kids are going back to Africa in three weeks. September 3rd, we get to go back. And uh, we plan to be there at least another three years. And I said to David, hey, you should bring a team of Westsiders out to uh, visit us sometime, especially if some of them know, Af- uh, know, know French. That's not important or necessary, but who knows, maybe that could happen at some point. We'd like to en- encourage you to pray for us if you're interested. I also have some prayer cards here that you're welcome to, to take. They're right here. And it'd be great to hear from you as well. We send out newsletters. You're welcome to get those. I want to end by praying for you, Westside. Ask God's blessing on you. God, thank you for the chance to meet together as your children this morning. God, thank you that when we come together, we are challenged to know who you are again. And we just acknowledge this morning, God, that you are great, you are majestic, and there is no one who compares to you. You are the great God, and God, we are not gods. We just say that outrightly to you this morning, God. We are small in comparison to you. But yet, like David says, you are mindful of us. How is that? So God, I pray for Westside this this week that they would rise to walk in their true identity as sons and daughters of the king this week, that they would walk in authority. Jesus, you said that all authority in heaven and and on earth has been given to me. And so as your brothers and sisters, Jesus, we can walk in that same authority. And I pray that blessing on this gathering. God, that you would use them to impact their community, to impact their coworkers, to impact their neighbors, that the love of Jesus would go forth. I'm just reminded of the words from Philemon that Paul said to Philemon, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith at all times so that you will get a, a, a greater understanding of all the good things we have in Christ. And I pray that that would be true for Westside. Bless them, Father. Bless their community barbecue that's coming up. And Lord, help us to bear up under suffering. Help us to welcome it and allow you to change us more and more into your image. We pray these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.